Today is 16th of July 2022. My name is Audrey Ann and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland and I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Nancy J, Sue L and Johan. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or the co-host by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions will, which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to previous week's recordings in the chat function. We ask if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. And I will now hand you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. I hope everybody is well this morning. Just a reminder, next Saturday, we will not be meeting. I'm going to be doing a big book workshop in Flagstaff, Arizona, on the campus of Northern Arizona University. And it will give all who attend a very nice three-day break from this intense heat. We're in, we're in, we're locked in the middle of it. It has been 110, 112, 115 every day. We're not quite as one, about 112, 114 every day. And we are sweating the oldies down here. We are sweating with the oldies. We're old and we sweat. So the bottom line is, is that uh, next weekend, we will not be here together in this forum. We will rejoin on the 30th of July, one week after the, the workshop in Flagstaff. And for those of you who are attending, I look forward to seeing you there. I know that several of you have reached out to me and said, you're gonna be there in Flagstaff. So I. I uh, look forward to spending the weekend with you up there. We're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to do some really good work. Uh, what else did I want to say? I just hope that you're having a great day. I hope everything is well with all of you. And I hope that it is as absolutely gorgeous a summer day where you are as it is here, even though it's very hot. It's an absolutely beautiful day. We are in the chapter, we're gonna close it out today. We're closing out chapter three. Chapter three, more about alcoholism. And the chapter more about alcoholism is the last of the chapters that concerns itself with step one. Step one is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. So in this endeavor, this is the last that we're going to be talking about step one. We open up the chapter and we find out that we have to concede to our innermost selves that we were compulsive overeater eaters and the idea that somehow someday we will be able to control and enjoy our, our eating is really a delusion. It's an illusion. And that many of us will, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Uh, many will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. Food is a very, very difficult thing to give up for the compulsive overeater. It is our lover. It is our friend. And to a great degree, it works when nothing else will work. What do, when I say it works, what do I mean by that specifically? It works what? It works to fix your flat tire. It works to start your, uh, start your car up. No, it doesn't do anything like that. When I say that the food works, 
What I mean specifically is it takes the world and the thoughts and the fears and the angers and the hurts, and it makes them go away temporarily. For about nine seconds, the food will make the world a beautiful, beautiful place. And what we have been doing from the time we were babies is we have been trying to arrange the outside world, our externals to match up so that our insides could feel better. And we've never quite been successful at doing that. And that's why a little later on in the big book, it's gonna talk about the, the lights, the ballet, the scenery. We try to arrange these things in a way so as to minimize our pain and we just can't seem to do it. But then along comes the idea of eating candy or eating whatever, cookies or French fries or whatever that may be for you, fried foods, what have you. And we eat these things and what happens then is only felt by us. And that is called the effect. And that effect is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly when we eat certain foods. And those foods and the eating of those foods will give us such a good feeling, give us such a blissful feeling that we will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And this effect is so elusive, Dr. Silkworth tells us, that we cannot tell the true from the false. Does that mean I think today is, is uh, Tuesday? No. Does that mean I think I live in Argentina? No. What it means is I will look at Doritos, I will look at French fries and think to myself, even though I have never been able to control and enjoy these foods, I control and enjoy. Now I could control them and not enjoy them, I could enjoy them and not control them, but I could never control and enjoy these foods at the same time. And I will convince myself that this time, this instance, this particular time is going to be different because I am in such pain from not eating that the pain of not eating is just too much to bear. And I eat in search of relief from that intense, intenable pain of not eating. And I eat those foods and what happens is I feel fantastic for about nine seconds. But then what happens? I have triggered the physical allergy and I eat way more of these foods than I had intended. And so the more I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And it is just endless. It is absolutely endless. And there is no accounting for it. I have a disease of the mind. I have a disease of the body. You can't see our allergy. You can only feel it. And only a compulsive overeater feels it to the rest of the world, they just don't understand because they don't have it. They don't get what we get from the food. The food doesn't do for them what it does for us. 
and the food doesn't do to them what it what it does to us. So we wonder how they are able to control their eating, and they wonder how in the world is it possible that after everything they know we've been through, all the crying, all the torture, all the loneliness, all the clothes that wouldn't fit, all of the pain that we have described to them over the years that we have felt at the hands of this disease, how in the world is he eating corn dogs and french fries yet again? Why would he do that to himself? And they scratched their heads and wondered why I did what I did. And I scratched my head and wondered how in the world could two adults split a hamburger, neither one of which finishing their half of the hamburger. How in the world is it possible for these people to eat such minimal amounts of food and be happy about it? So I endeavored to just live my life and die as quickly as I could. I didn't want to live in this world. And I found out in my life that the food is just the bare beginning of this disease. It is also for me, I am not speaking for anyone else. For me, it is a disease of self-hatred, self-loathing. It is a disease of feeling apart from rather than a part of. It is a disease of jealousy. It is a disease of catastrophizing. It is a disease that makes me feel like life just isn't worth living. It's a disease that makes me stand at the precipice of things, doubting my own self, knowing full well that no matter what I try to do, the food is going to cut me down. I never was able to dream the dreams that others could dream. I never was able to fulfill dreams like others could because every single time I dared to dream a dream, I knew very well that eventually the food was going to cut me down and I would fail. So I became a defeatist. These are some, but not all of the things that happened to me on my way to being 335 pounds as a senior in high school, 500 pounds as a sophomore in college, 600 pounds as a college graduate, 700 pounds in the years ensuing. And so these were the things that I was looking for in the food. I was looking for a solution. Not, I wasn't looking for these things. I was looking for a solution to these things. I was looking for something that would give me peace in the face of such turmoil that I could not bear it any longer. I could not bear the fact that I woke up in the morning. I wanted to die. And every single day, I let myself down. Every single day, I would swear to God, I would swear to whoever I could talk to that I wasn't going to eat pizza or I wasn't going to eat bagels or I wasn't going to eat whatever it was I swore to God I wasn't going to eat. And then by nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever that was, there I was eating it again. And this 
idea that I could not trust myself, that I lied to myself, made me hate myself. Today, I'm a man of integrity, not just with those around me to the best of my ability, but I try very hard not to lie to myself. And that only comes about as the result of the recovery that is promised in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as we traveled the road through this chapter, we encounter a man of 30 who was doing a great deal of spree drinking. And he decided he, wasn't, he was gonna drink no more until he became successful in business. And this is based on a story that appeared in the book that inspired this chapter. And that book is called The Common Sense of Drinking. And it was written by Richard Peabody. And Peabody died of his own alcoholism in 1936. He wrote this book, he published this book in 1930, and the book is called The Common Sense of Drinking. Now, the saddest part was he came right up to the precipice of a spiritual solution, but never crossed over that threshold. He thought that a change of environment or a change in friends or a change in job or a change in geography, a change in attitudes would cure him. And of course, it never Never did. He died in 1936. Very, very sad. But so vital is the book, The Common Sense of Drinking, that Bill Wilson's copy of the book, The Common Sense of Drinking, is on display as we're speaking this morning in the AA archives in New York City. So it is a very, very important piece of our history. And some of you have said to me, you shouldn't be mentioning that book because it's not conference approved. I'm not mentioning it in the sense I'm telling you to go out and read it. I'm not mentioning it in the sense that I'm telling you we're going to be discussing it. I am mentioning it to you only because to deny that it is a part of our history is to deny a fact. There are four books that really were impactful in our history. And I will mention all four of those books now because I'll save myself the time later in the questions and answers. So we have The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. We also have the Book of James, New Testament. The Book of James, very, very important, very, very impactful in our history. We have the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount was written by Emmett Fox, and of course, last, but certainly not least, the varieties of religious experience by William James. And these were books, very, very important, so important that William James's book is actually mentioned in the big book. And so it's very, very impactful in our history. But for the few of you that have reached out to me in opposition to me mentioning the common sense of drinking, uh, by Richard Peabody. I do apologize if I'm saying anything that is offensive to you, but to ignore where this information comes from would be to spit in the face of the history that we are so rich in, in our beautiful, life-giving, 
program of recovery. Very, very important. And again, I'm sorry if this uh, does kind of ruffle your feathers a little bit. I, I wish I could present the material in another way, but I don't know how. So we have the man of 30 and the man of 30 is very, very important because he stays bone dry for 25 years. And he is pulls at the he pulls out his carpet slippers in a bottle. Out comes his carpet slippers in a bottle, and he's dead within four years. Now, why do we need that story in the big book? Very, very important story, and a sort of version of it does appear in the Common Sense of Drinking. And Bill sort of changed a few of the details, and he sort of used it in the big book. And when I say used it, I mean in quotations. He sort of used it in the big book, but very important in that is we learn that the disease is not treated by sobriety. This guy didn't have a drink for 25 years. He stayed sober for 25 years, yet he was dead within four years. So what do we learn? We learn that abstinence does not treat this disease. Abstinence is very important, but it is not the most important thing in my life. My relationship with God, the most important thing in my life is my relationship with God. It says on page 45 of the big book, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's the main object of the book, then boys and girls, it better darn well be the main object of my life, very, very important. And we learn from Peabody and we learn from the story of the man of 30 that the disease is permanent, the disease is progressive, the disease if untreated is fatal. It is absolutely fatal and so permanent, progressive, and fatal. I have a friend of mine, he lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's quite a card. He says it's the three Ps, permanent, progressive, and fatal. He likes everything, you know, lined up, permanent, progressive, and fatal. But anyway, then we go into Jim, and the story of Jim is very important. Jim loses his car dealership because of his drinking. So no matter what the consequences, he still cannot control his drinking drinking, but he feels he can handle it on his own and he resists any help. And that is something that is very common to us. And that is we can't handle it on our own. We've never been able to handle it on our own, but yet we are so given because of our tempestuous egos not to accept the help that is here. We want to sort of handle this on our own. Why do we want to handle it on our own? Because of the ego, obviously ego, self-will run riot. And we're afraid that maybe we don't know everything and we're afraid of letting go of our food. I I think what a lot of us come in here to find is what I came in here to find. I wanted to eat three buckets of Kentucky fried chicken every day and still be thin. And that is not possible. It is not possible for me to eat everything I want to eat and still remain in recovery. That is not going to happen. Is it because it makes me fat? Yes, that's part of it. But it also gives me the effect 
And if I'm getting the effect from the food, then I'm not, I'm not gonna seek the effect from the steps. I'm not gonna get an effect from the steps. I already feel better. I'm not gonna get in touch with my feelings. I'm not gonna get in touch with emotions. And I'm not gonna be able to do a fourth step I'm not going to be able to get in touch with reality. I'm going to be living in the world of the inebriated because maybe the liquor looks a little different on the user, but the food inebriates me. The food gives me that false sense of reality in exactly the same way that liquor or drugs gives the users a feeling, that false feeling of reality. So it's very, very important. I may not appear drunk when I'm eating Almond Joy bars or eating Raisinets or I'm eating chocolate turtles, but trust me, I am drunk. I am not in my right mind when I am under the effect. It looks like I'm listening to you. It looks like I see you. All I see is you may be in the way and I want more potato chips. I want more whatever it is I want at that time. And I'm just listening to you. And I'm really just hearing like Charlie Brown's teacher, walk, 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 walk. I don't really care what the hell you're saying. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I don't give a damn. You could drop dead right in front of me. And I wouldn't care. I would step over you and get myself to the nearest hot dog stand. I would get myself to the nearest convenience store and chow on some milk duds. And I would raise some Twinkies in your honor and toast you and say, too bad you died, but let's have some more Twinkies and some chocolate milk because I really wouldn't give a damn. And I don't think I'm alone in that little world. It looks like I'm there, but I'm absolutely not there. And then we look at one of the quintessential stories is the jaywalker. Oh, the jaywalker. What does the jaywalker illustrate for us? It illustrates for us that no matter what the consequences of this disease, no matter how high a price we have paid, no matter how many things we have missed socially, the weddings we couldn't go to, the christenings we couldn't go to, we had nothing to wear, we were afraid to go, we were afraid of who we were going to see, we were scared to death of who was going to yell at us because of the weight that we've gained or the weight that we've lost, we were scared to death to go where there was people. This disease is a wonderfully effective abuser. And what is the one thing that all abusers do first to the abused? They separate them from their, their uh, help. They isolate you so you cannot tap into help. And that's what this disease does. So I'm afraid to go out into the world. And no matter what the consequences, no matter how horrible I feel about myself, no matter how much that every day I wake up and curse God, every day that I woke up and cursed God, God was very sad because he gave me the gift of a life. I am the dream of those who were murdered before me. I have many, many, many relatives who never got to live out their lives. They were exterminated like vermin off the face of the earth because they celebrated Sabbath on Saturday rather than Sunday. I am their dream. 
My daughter is their dream. And yet I woke up in the morning and begged God for death. I didn't want to live because of this disease. I didn't look good. I didn't feel good. The diarrhea, the farting, the absolute embarrassment of a life that I created. And so in the jaywalker, we see in every sentence of the jaywalker that no matter what the consequences that we paid are, no matter how high those consequences are, the disease keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse because that is the nature of progressive. It keeps progressively getting worse. And what I find is, what I find so beautifully is through the mercy of my higher power, through God's grace and mercy, the recovery is progressive. And I find myself getting healed. I find myself getting healed in areas that I didn't even know were broken. I have the ability to speak my mind, which I could never have done in this disease. I told people what they wanted to hear. I was scared to death to speak truth. I was scared to death because I wanted you so desperately to like me, particularly if you were a female and you were reasonably good looking and, and age appropriate. I wanted you to like me. So I told you what you wanted to hear. I did what you wanted me to do, but I paid a very high price for that. I say yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no today. That's a miracle. That's a gift of my higher power. I am a friend to myself. I treat myself in a way that is kind and loving, and I don't allow ill treatment of myself, either by myself or others. I get up and say, this is unacceptable behavior. This is going to change one way or the other. I find myself, my self-talk is more merciful and loving than it's ever been. I used to curse myself to the point where my ex-wife grabbed my hand. We were in a car. We had been living in Eugene, Oregon for maybe a week at that time, maybe a week. My daughter wasn't even born yet. And I got lost while I was just living in a city for a week. Of course I got lost. And she said to me, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? And the answer is no. Nobody would stand for the way I was talking to myself. And today I find myself saying, Harlan, you're a smart man. You're going to figure this out. If you can't figure it out, you're going to get the help you need. You're going to pick up the phone. You're going to call John. You're going to call somebody. You're going to call whoever. You're going to get whatever help you need. This is going to be okay. Not everything in my life has to be a damn catastrophe. And that's the way I lived my life. Everything in life was a damn catastrophe. Chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And then we look at the story of Fred. And Fred is a well, is a, is a, partner in a well-known accounting firm. See, maybe we get this picture that it's only horrible emotions that we're trying to escape, that only we're only trying to escape hatred and resentment and fear and jealousy and all this. No, 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 no. Happiness is an emotion too. And I have eaten railroad cars full of French fries and railroad cars full of donuts when things have gone well for me. 
thing, the only thing sometimes worse for me than things going badly is things going well. So we see Fred just as drunk as when things went poorly for the other people in the stories. And we see that he finds himself in New York and there's a taxi cab driver instead of his wife. He ends up back in a hospital. He's unable to control his drinking. We are powerless over food. We, our lives have become unmanageable. And this chapter illustrates beautifully both the powerless condition and the unmanageability of our lives as we had been living it in the food, in the bulimia, in the anorexia, that we were powerless over food and our lives had definitely become unmanageable. And this chapter does a beautiful, beautiful job. It is pure poetry, pure beauty in its beautiful essence. I believe that chapter three is as well-written a chapter as any chapter in a book I've ever read. It just illustrates these points beautifully and memorably. I just believe that with all my heart. So let's go to page 42. And we're going to finish the chapter out today. Let's go to page 42. And what we're going to find on page 42, at the, at the bottom of the page, we're going to see the words quite as important was the discovery. And I'll give you a second to get to the page on page 42 quite as important was the discovery. And then we're going to finish out. But before we get there, because I always like to give you a chance, just remember that the stories and this chapter are about step one. And I know how to say that in Italian. It's Passa Prima. I learned that from my friend Barbara, who she lives in Paris, but she speaks English and Italian and French. She's a, like a walking babble. She's like a walking tower of babble. She speaks all these different languages. But anyway, um, Passo Prima, step one. Okay, let's go to page 42. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. What are spiritual principles? The spiritual principles are the steps. The principles are the steps. I know some of you come from a background where the principle of this is honesty and the principle of this is this and the principle of that is that. That is stuff that came around in the 60s and the 70s, decades after this book was not only written, but had gone through several editions of the book. So all that stuff that you see on uh, sheets and in the meetings of the principle of this is honesty and the, that's all good information. I'm not knocking it, but when you see principles in the book, they are not referring to that. They are referring to the steps. Bill learned in his writing class not to keep using the same words again and again, you know, you know, you know, you know. So he uses steps, he uses principles, he uses rules, he uses different things to mean the same thing. So I don't want you to get confused that what we're talking about is this stuff that came out year, decades after the book was written. That was something that came about in the 70s and 80s is this, the principle that you see today. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Take that, it, 
this is a textbook. So he is telling you in this textbook, what is the answer to, the, to this question? What will solve all your problems? The answer is the spiritual principles or the steps, or if we were playing Jeopardy, the answer would be solves all problems. And the question would be, what are the steps? So if we were playing Jeopardy, the answer would be, again, what solves all your problems? What's the question on Jeopardy? What are the steps? Very, very important. I have since been brought into a way of living. I'm at the top of 43. <clears throat> I have been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. Now I could speak on that for about three, four days and the life that I live today is so remarkably more productive than the life I lived before that I do not have time or space to tell you. It is a joy of my life today to be of real service to others. It says on page 77 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, on page 77, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I cannot be of maximum service to anyone except the Hostess Baking Company, Mars Chocolate, Hershey's chocolate and Nestle's chocolate and the Frito-Lay company that makes Doritos while I'm in the food. The only ones that I am helping in the food are those entities and the restaurants closest to my house that I choose to binge at. Those, and maybe, maybe the Kroc family if they still own McDonald's. Those are the only entities that benefit from my disease. I do not benefit from my disease, nor do anybody in my environment. As a matter of fact, there's no middle ground when you suffer from this disease. I am either going to add to your life, and one of the ways I add to my life is to be a happy person, to take care of myself so I don't dump a truckload of dreck on your door every day, every time we speak. If I'm dumping a truckload of dreck on your lap every time we speak, that gets tedious. A very, very wise man who's no longer alive, he said this to me when I was a little boy. He said, don't complain. He says, nobody likes a schlub with his hand out. That gets old really fast. Don't cry on people's shoulders. They don't like it. They'll run away from you. Don't do it. Now I don't have much to complain about. Yes, I wish this was different. Yes, I wish that headline was different. Yes, I wish that area of my life was a little different. But on the whole, that's part of the human condition. And there isn't a human being on the face of this earth, rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Gentile, green, yellow, or red, that doesn't have things in their life that they wish were different. That's part of being a human being. And I didn't know that before. I just thought it's poor me, poor me. And in AA, they have an expression, poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me a drink. So I am not of service to anyone when I am in the food, although I don't know it. 
because I'm blocked off from that information because all I can hear is the jibber jabber in my head that says, get more milk duds, get more bagels, get more pastrami, get more hamburgers, get more French, whatever that may be. That's all I can hear. That's all I can react to. I don't give a damn who is in front of me, what their situation, I don't care. All I want is more food. I'm like an eating machine, like a shark. <sighs> okay, top of 43. And I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Now, nobody here of the 146 people here Nobody would go back to the pain and hell of the torture of this disease, but we do. And why do we do? And how do we end up there? Because the idea to eat is a very sexy idea. It comes wearing beautiful clothing. It speaks the language to you that you want to hear of self-pity and poor you. And they're not, how could you, you can't let them treat you like this. F them. We get the efforts. We get the, the screw it's. And the next thing you know, unchecked, if we're not working steps, particularly tenant. 10, 11, and 2, 10, 2, 10, and 11, and 12. We're going to eat again. And I hear this every single day. People tell me every day, I work the steps like it's past tense, but they're not working them now. And they wonder how they ended up in the food because they never realized that the food was not the problem in the first place, that the food indeed was the solution to the problem. And if the food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotions. That when we're scared, when we're angry, when we're selfish, when we're happy, whatever those emotions might be, the solution is food. We just learned that the solution to our problem is in spiritual principles or the steps. I'm telling you the other solution is the food. The food works beautifully until it doesn't. The steps never stop working, but the food really does. And we have to eat more and more and more and more and more to get that effect. And now I have to eat so much that I, of course, I weighed 700 pounds. Of course, I was like an adolescent manatee because I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. And so the food really has a definite diminishing value as years go by. So I can either eat the food or work the steps. Those are my choices. But nobody would go back to the food voluntarily if you could show them the torture. But in the moment, we can excuse the Dorito. We can excuse the candy. We can excuse another peach. We can excuse another apple. We can excuse a couple of ounces of steak. We can, we can, we can excuse a couple ounces of whatever a protein bar, whatever that might be. We excuse it because it's not candy, although the protein bar I would take issue with. It's not candy, it's not you know sugar, it's not this, it's not that. No, any extra eating is the disease in its active form. Any extra food is the disease in its active form. 
And so I cannot think to myself that I'm getting away with something. And how is it that I keep those emotions in check, which get the ball rolling in the first place? By doing the steps. When I try to handle these emotions on my own, and I'm going to go in there and fight fear, I'm going to fight anger, I find myself fighting food, and I will lose every single time. I have, I have never beaten food. I have never beaten fear, anger, happiness, jealousy, selfishness. I have never beaten guilt and shame and remorse. I have never beaten self-pity. I have never defeated jealousy. I have never defeated any of these emotions. And to think that today I can is insane. It is insanity to think that today, July 16th, 2022 is going to somehow be different. It is not different. I don't care what's happened to me. I don't care what headline I read. Eating is not a solution to that problem. We all have newspapers. We all have internet. We all have access to information. Some of that information is palatable. Some of that information is god-awful, nightmarish. How is eating going to help? How is eating going to change any of it? And the answer is, it's not. It's not. It's an excuse. It's not a reason. If I felt that by eating pancakes with syrup today, Hand to God, I, I tell you this with a pure heart. If I felt that eating pancakes today would solve the problems of the world, I would go to the nearest IHOP and I would get myself some pancakes. Hand to God. But it doesn't help anyone or anything. Let's continue. We're on page 43. Fred's story near the top. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. We, he had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Now I'm going to explain what a ringer is because I know some of you will be asking me if you're under the age of about 45, you probably don't know what a ringer even is. But when I was a little boy, my mother would go down to the basement of our apartment building with a washboard and an old fashioned washing machine not the kind that operates by itself, the kind you use manually. And she would wash our clothes on the washboard and she would get them as clean as she could. And then she would hang them up. And in the winter, she'd hang them up inside. And in the summer, she'd hang them up outside. And she had clothespins in her mouth. Like and as she would walk down the row, she would take the clothespin out of her mouth and put them on there. And you'd see, you've seen them in movies. If you've seen West Side Story, uh, if you've seen a lot of these movies, you see the clothes hanging on the line. Before you hang up the clothes, you put the clothes through the ringer. What is the ringer? The ringer is the thing you ring that gets all the water out of there or as much of the water as you can get out of there, out of there, so the clothes dry faster. That's what a ringer is. And you sure as hell don't want to get your finger stuck in there because if you do, you're going to be screaming bloody murder. You ain't going to like the way it feels when you get your finger stuck in there. You are going to be in for one world 
of pain. It hurts. You're going to have to go get a splint. You're going to probably have to go to the emergency room. You're not going to like, you're not going to like the way that feels. I promise you, but that's what the ringer is. So the example is beautiful in 1939, but it loses sort of its luster because some of you are, you've never seen a wash machine like that or a wash situation like that because it's not part of your life today. So I'm, I'm getting, see, we give you all, we give you wash machine history, abyssal Yiddish. We give you all kinds of stuff. So keep tuning in, keep coming back because this is a varied curriculum here. This is, you get all kinds of information here that you just don't get in other places. Who would have thought that you'd come away this morning with information on the history of the washing machine? See, you, got, you just got to keep tuning in. Okay. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. And I would say that that's very, very true. My friend, Larry Kay in Chicago, he says, and I'm quoting him, nobody comes in here on a roll. What does that mean? Nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here because things are going well for them. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, my life is paradise. I'm, I can't believe how great my life is. I have more money than I will ever spend. Life is fantastic. Everybody in the world is sticking to my script. They consult me before they do anything and they listen to what I say. I think I'll go join Overeaters Anonymous. Nobody does that. Nobody says that. We come in here because things have gone badly. And sometimes people come in here and we judge them and we say, oh, this guy's so lucky. Oh, that lady. Oh, look at her. Look at that. Everybody that comes in here, everybody that's here has had their own private hell that they've gone through. Nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here because things went well for them. So behind every face that you see, and I know a lot of you have your cameras turned off and that's fine. But behind every name that you see, behind every face that you see is a sad story. And it's not a story that ends happily. It's a story of unhappiness and pain and the torture of this disease. So everybody has their story. Let's continue. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking, though not a religious person. I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. And the doctor that he's talking about is Percy Pollock. And the hospital that they're talking about is Bellevue. Bellevue is a hospital in New York that is very famous. Most of you have heard of it. You don't have to live in New York to have heard of Bellevue. And <clears throat> Percy Pollock was 
relating a story about how these alcoholics came to Bellevue and they wanted treatment and he did not want to treat them because in the opinion of most doctors, the alcoholic, the compulsive overeater, the drug addict are not worth your time because the recovery rate is so low, it's so non-existent that in the opinion of many, many doctors, it's just not worth their time. And Percy Pollock, he could not believe the results that they were getting in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. And this was even before the book came out. He couldn't believe that there were actually people not drinking. And yet at the same time, they were happy in their release from alcohol. He just could not believe that that was the case. So he was just in awe of the situation. He was just in awe of the whole experience that he had. And Dr. Silkworth tells us, and Dr. Pollock tells us that in most cases, if a doctor at that time, especially could avoid treating an alcoholic, they would avoid it because they feel like it's useless. I have a cardiologist and I'm going to see my cardiologist on the 29th of July, just a couple of weeks from yesterday. And he is of that opinion too. He says, except for you and maybe one or two other people, this is him talking to me, People come in here and I tell them, look, if you don't lose weight, you're going to die. And then they come in in six months and they're 40 pounds heavier. And they come in in six months from then and they're 100 pounds heavier. And then they don't come back because they're dead. He says, I don't see recovery. I don't see people able to do it. He says, I don't understand it. If, if I'm telling you, you need to lose weight, you better go lose weight. And I keep trying to explain to him, you don't understand because you don't understand. You could be a doctor. That's, that's great that you're a doctor and you're a cardiologist, but you don't have this disease. You don't speak the language of the heart. You will never know what makes us tick, just as we will never know what makes you tick. We just don't know what makes you tick. You don't know what makes us tick. And I bring literature every time I go, every time I go every six months to the cardiologist and I have AFib. And I bring literature and he just laughs. He's, oh, it's a waste of time. He says, if you want to waste your time, go put it out in the waiting room. He says, you're just wasting your time. And I'm going to keep doing it because you never, never know. You just, you got to take the chance. I'm going there anyway. I'm going to the cardiologist anyway. Might as well bring some literature for the waiting room. It doesn't cost me much. What does it cost me? About $5, $10, whatever the hell it costs me. Here, whatever it is, it's fine. But he he just considers it a complete waste of time. He says that the mathematical chances of someone losing the weight you've lost and keeping it off, he says it's zero. But yet here I am. So obviously it can't be zero because here I am. I'm living testimony that the steps work. The steps absolutely worked with me. And if they worked with me, they'll work with you. So we're going to go to the last paragraph in this chapter once more. See, he's told us this a few times here. He's already told us this. Now he's going to reiterate it because Bill knows that the purest form of teaching is repetition, repetition. And in education, they call that spiraling the information. Three and seven is 10. Seven and three is 10. 
10 minus seven is three. 10 minus three is seven, I hope. And it's on and on and on and on and on and on and on with the same things over and over and over and over and over again. And the big book knows that it needs to teach us these things in such a way so that we will teach them to others. And in teaching it to others, we will be able to retain a certain percentage of that information for ourselves. If you don't teach this to others, the mental blank spot, ego, will force this information from your brain. It will not allow you to retain it because the ego wants you to feel good right now. The ego wants you to feel good. And how do you feel good? You eat things that give you that effect. The best way I know how to feel good right now is to get up from this desk, go to the nearest convenience store, the nearest supermarket, get myself candy and chips and other chazerai, chazerai, chazerai in Yiddish just means garbage, just crap, and start chowing on it. I'm going to feel fantastic. For about nine seconds, the world is going to be a very groovy, beautiful place. I'm going to want to buy the world a Coke. I'm going to want to sing Kumbaya at the fire. We're going to hold hands. We're going to buy the world a Coke. We're going to sing Kumbaya. And then we're going to all hug each other. And we're going to do that. We're just going to do that because it's very important for us to do, right? Well, not really. The bottom line is I feel much better by working the steps than I do any other endeavor I could think of. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. We cannot fight food. We are not equipped to fight the food. We are not equipped to hang in there with jealousy. Rage, anger, fear. We're not equipped to hang in there with compare and despair. We're not equipped for that. We can't do that because we have egos that say, I can handle this myself. I can do this myself. I can do this. If there's one book I wish was never written for us to see, it's the little engine that could. Because the little engine that could says, I think I can, I think I can. And by the end of the book, the little engine that could gets in there and accomplishes his goal. We are not the little engine that could. We are the food addict. We are the compulsive overeater who can't. Remember what it says in chapter five. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. May you find that, may you find God now. The only force in the universe that is greater than my disease is the force of my higher power. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. So please don't remember that I've said this. Don't write it down. Don't teach it to other people. Keep it to yourself as long as you can. The only force greater in life than the force of the food is the force of my higher power. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, 
neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. I'm gonna mention some names. Karen Carpenter, John Candy, Chris Farley, President William Howard Taft, Fatty Arbuckle, Mama Cass Elliott. What do all these people have in common? This disease took them out. It took them out like they were flies. It didn't even have to bat an eye. It took them out. Did they have money? Did they have fame? Did they have power? Did they have fortune? Did they have resources at their disposal? You bet they did. Did it help them? No. Did it save their lives? No. Is it going to help you? No. And yet we will convince ourselves that it will because the idea that we can eat that food right now and feel better is so overwhelming. We are willing to convince ourselves that yellow is red and red is green and green is purple so that we can eat that food that we desperately want because we cannot stand the way we feel when we're not eating. The steps work. The steps work. His defense must come from a higher power. Without step two through 12, there is no relief from the intenable nightmarish pain of not eating. And not eating is very painful. Just as not drinking is painful to the alcoholic. Not eating sucks when you're, when you're not in recovery. That's why we look to the food for relief from that pain. We don't know where else to find it. We don't know where else to find it. Now you know. Now you've been told. But if you don't tell others, you'll never remember the things we've talked about here. You will not remember. It will not occur to you. Why not? Because you have a built-in forgetter called the mental blank spot that will not allow your brain to conjure up an image <clears throat> that it does not want you conjuring up. Your brain will not allow that information to the surface. And so what happens again and again and again and again is your built-in forgetter in, in cahoots with your mental twist has conspired to kill you. I just want to remind you before we wrap up today that next week we will not be here. We will start the chapter We Agnostics on the 30th of July, which is two weeks from today. And we're going to start this chapter. Now, you constantly hear me saying this chapter or that chapter is my favorite chapter to speak on. I'm going to tell you up front, my least favorite chapter to speak on is We Agnostics. And the reason that it's the least favorite of mine to speak on is because some of you will understand this, but 
it is very difficult to speak of God because for every person here, there is, when I say the word God, there's 135 here. There is a different image of God in the head and heart of every one of you. And sometimes this becomes a very sensitive topic. I promise you, I will do the best that I can to tightrope through the chapter and not offend anyone. If I do, I'm sorry. I'm going to do the best that I can not to. But we are going to talk about God and we're going to talk about agnostics. What is an agnostic? It is someone without knowledge. An atheist believes that there is no God. A believer believes that there is God. But a lot of what we're going to be talking about is how to seek that God, how to choose a power greater than ourselves that is workable in our life. We're going to talk about that. And we're also going to be talking to many believers and non-believers alike about pockets of agnosticism. Now, when I say a pocket of agnosticism, what do I mean? You have a sense that God created the world or you have a sense that God is good, but you don't know that he'll help you with your finances. He don't, you don't know that he'll help you with your food. You don't know that he'll help you with your romance, with your, with your children, with your husband, with your wife, with whatever. You don't know that for sure. And these doubts are pockets of agnosticism, and this is where the disease lives. Notice that the chapter isn't you agnostics. Notice that the chapter isn't those agnostics. Notice that the chapter isn't to the agnostic. The chapter is we agnostics, because no matter how strongly most believe, many also believe that there are limits to God's power, and this is what we're going to be talking about when we speak of pockets of agnosticism. So I hope in two weeks you'll come back. I hope that in two weeks you will find that you will hear things that will help you. I hope you did today. I hope that you will remember to start putting your shekels away, your zlatas away, your rubles away, because the OA birthday is coming up in January. The 13th, 14th, and 15th of January is the OA birthday in Los Angeles, California. And I hope to see everyone there. It is going to be a wonderful, wonderful convention. There's going to be a lot of recovery there. There's going to be a lot of good times there. I hope that you will be with us. Stephanie still does not have a chair, so we need to get that taken care of also. But we have to put our money away for the birthday. And I hope that uh, also before I turn it back over to Audrey or Sue or whomever, that you will remember that we're going to do questions and answers. If you raised a question last week, 